0: Hello, and welcome to the IMV Imaging Focal Point podcast, where we bring you insightful conversations with experts at the forefront of veterinary imaging. I'm your host for today. My name is Laura, and I'm joined by my usual colleagues in arms, Amy and Jake.
1: Hello. Hello, everybody.
0: And whether it's morning or afternoon with you, our listeners, it is both morning and afternoon with us as we record. For today, we are joined um, by our distinguished guest from another time zone on our planet at the University of Calgary in Canada. So, yes, today we are joined by Soren Boyson, a professor and specialist in small animal emergency and critical care. Hello, Soren, and thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, hello from uh, sunny, warm Calgary in November. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me uh, to the podcast.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. It's nice to bring a bit of sunshine to our dark evenings that we're experiencing here. So, in this episode, we are turning our attention to the evolving landscape of point of care ultrasound, including its crucial role in guiding vascular access procedures. So Soren brings a, a real wealth of experience and expertise um, and is a proven in, um, inspirational speaker. So this does promise to be a treat of a journey into a point of care ultrasound. So um, perhaps could we start with a retrospective journey into how you've seen point of care ultrasound evolve over time and what sort of advancements you've witnessed in your career to date?
2: That's a very good question. And uh, I could probably spend an hour talking on that unto itself. Uh, The evolution for point of care ultrasound really uh, was an adaptation from the human field. And back when I was a resident uh, in emergency critical care at Tufts in Massachusetts, back in 1999, I started my residency and one of the requirements is to do a research project. And I went into my residency thinking, fantastic. I've got some mentors that are unbelievable in cardiology and other imaging modalities. This will be a great opportunity for me to learn during my residency ultrasound. And at that time, I didn't realize how strict the some of the regulations were on who could perform point of care ultrasound. And my mentors had said, if you want to do ultrasound, you should do a research project because it's not part of formal training, only your radiologists and cardiologists will really do formal ultrasound. So then we developed that through looking at the human literature, the original focused assessment with stenography for trauma exam. So that was the fast exam that we realized was being used as a point of care diagnostic modality to see into the abdomen at that point in time, beyond radiographs where we didn't have to move the patients out of the ER. We could bring the machine to them. We could do these procedures with minimal restraint, minimal risk in a very safe environment while we're still doing triage while we're giving fluids or providing oxygen. So that's really where it sort of evolved from or started was a simple, let's take that human side of things where they're doing things in the ER. It really started with just the abdomen and just looking for free fluid in the abdomen in animals suffering from trauma. That's exactly where it started. And then we evolved from there and said, well, in the human side, they're now also looking into the thorax. Can we do that? So the literature followed on that to look into the thorax for fluid in the pleural space and air in the plural space. As well as pericardial fusion so again it was really simple even as uh late as say 2007-8 we were still only looking for fluid in the different body cavities and air in the pleural space and then it really exploded from there and as we started to gain traction by showing the evidence through research that you don't have to be a board certified uh, specialist to answer simple relevant clinical questions it really opened the door for us to do those research projects and say This is something any general practitioner or ER doctor can do, provided we stick to the simple clinical questions that don't require uh, extensive three years of a residency to obtain and apply on a daily basis. So that's really where it sort of evolved from. It was a slow process uh, before it gained traction and before some of the other specialized realized that, yeah, at three in the morning, your radiologists and cardiologists don't want to be coming in to scan those patients to say it does or doesn't have pericardial fusion or it does or doesn't have abdominal effusion. And that's where we really sort of established that foothold to say these are the questions that can be asked and answered by non-specialists in a short period of time with a high degree of accuracy and minimal training. So it still requires appropriate training uh, to be able to do that. But that's really how it's evolved from simple uh, fluid in the abdomen to then moving into the thorax. Then we're now actually layering in gallbladder wall edema. We're looking for free air in the abdomen now. We're looking at uh, B-lines and actual pathology in the lung through consolidation in B-lines for decreased aerated lung. We're looking at changes in the heart, left atriotic ratios. We're looking at volume status by looking at the vena cava and the chambers of the heart uh, to help guide fluid resuscitation. We're looking into the abdomen now and assessing renal pelvic dilation in our cats. A really nice study out of the RVC to show non-specialists could do that as well. Uh, so it's slowly evolving, and we do um, urinary bladder volume calculations. So it's probably from the original fluid yes or no in trauma to now at least 20 different almost binary-driven questions we can ask and answer very quickly in the clinical setting to help guide that patient uh, management uh, and diagnostics, therapy, etc. It's
3: almost become... Critical patients, what can you do in a very short period of time rather than, does it have fluid in the wrong place? Does it have air in the wrong place? It's now, this is a critical case. So for instance, blocked cat, renal pelvic um, diameter and um, bladder volume. It's, it's fascinating how it's evolving so quickly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you, you did a very nice job of, of summarizing as in there because we actually did do a study when we transitioned it from trauma patients to non-trauma. So we worked with one of our students here in their final year of veterinary school, Dr. McMurray, published that study in 2016 and showed it has applications in non-trauma patients. So we took it beyond the trauma setting. And then we also in that study looked at stable versus unstable, which is a really good point that you just brought up, Amy, because when they're unstable, our chances of finding the fluid is what we were looking at the before at the time. But when we were looking for basic things, it was less than 10% chance of finding something if the patient came into ER stable in the absence of trauma. But where it got really interesting, it didn't matter if it was a cat or a dog, if it came into the ER in the absence of trauma, what were the chances we'd find something on our fluid search with our ultrasound point of care at that time? It was more than 75% with unstable cats and dogs. You hit the nail on the head when you said it's really for the critical. It's for, you can use it in any because 10% is still not negligible. But if you have an unstable patient, the odds are if you put an ultrasound probe on that patient, you'll have a more than 75% chance of finding something, whether it's uh, fluid or now if we go into more things, I'm willing to bet we're in the process of redoing this study with our residents. I'm betting it's more than 90% chance you put a probe on and ask the 20 questions we ask in an unstable patient, heart, brain, lungs, hitting your clinic. You want to know something that can potentially direct where you're going to go. I would argue ultrasound is probably one of the least invasive, um, radiation-sparing, uh, friendliest things we can do. Because if you can listen, you can probably put a probe on. No more stress to that patient. And now we have a, a more than 90% chance, I'm willing to bet, based on the newer studies that are going to come out, to find something if we put a probe on that unstable unstable patient.
3: So that's 75% at the moment, potentially 90% detection rate. Is that for experienced certified people or is that for gps techs
2: fantastic question it was our fourth year uh invested medicine veterinary student that found that incidence so uh, i'm going to argue that if our fourth year veterinary students can perform the ultrasound our general practitioners and our er doctors are probably already more experienced in many situations but if they're not could get to that level very very quickly so a great question That was a fourth year uh, veterinary student that did that research project and tracked that incidence. And at that time, it was simply looking for fluid in the abdomen, pericardial space and pleural spaces, along with pneumothorax. But if they had also looked for beelines in the lungs, looked for other pathologies, I think that incidence, like I said, would go up higher than that 75. And our resident now, preliminarily, I'm going to guess it hits that 90% range, close to
0: what level or amount of training say would that fourth year student have received in order to be able to achieve that
2: yeah great question as well and we probably are a bit more progressive in our veterinary training at pointecarroll sound we have a good team here of people that love the research and the simulation on it that uh, experience at that point in time what we did was our students all have to go through the pointecarroll sound training lab so we have a four hour lab that they have to participate in in third year. And they are exposed to the lectures, uh, probably about four hours of didactic lecture on pathologies, normal anatomy that you would see with point of care of sound. Uh, so it's very similar to uh, some of the podcasts that we've delivered or uh, video casts that we've delivered in the past. Um, but they basically have four hours of didactic, four hours of labs, hands on training. And then when we did them, we supervised. So we did a a, a bit of an hour or two on physics and then had them scan five patients with myself and my other colleague, Dr. Shaloub, that was on that uh, research project. And then the first 20 that we included, we had them do the scans with us there to observe everything. So they still captured all the data. We stood and watched to make sure things were done correctly. And then we actually did an analysis to say that in the 100 scans that were involved in that study scan one to 20 there's a difference in time to obtain the images between the first 20 and the last 20 but there wasn't between the second 20 and the last 20. so i'd argue it takes 20 based on that if you extrapolate that take it with a grain of salt but i would say 25 scans after doing a hands-on and a, a didactic course is probably enough to at least find what we were looking for at that point in time which was free fluid the other pathologies we'll have to wait and see if there's a bigger difference when we start looking for more uh subtle things that for example free air in the abdomen or other things like that how much training does it take it's a great question i think there's going to be more research coming out in terms of experience needed for it but for basic applications when it comes to point of carol sound uh most of our students are trained to do it and they're actually We have some other ongoing research projects with our fourth year investigative medicine students. So GI motility is another one that we looked at, duodenum and stomach. That study was done by a fourth year veterinary student as well. Um, So the stuff that we use and ask for general practitioners really doesn't take uh, extensive training to be able to apply with a degree of accuracy, because, again, we're not trying to make cardiologists. We're not trying to make radiologists. we're just basically saying, can simple questions that are clinically relevant at that point in time be answered with confidence by non-specialists?
1: I think that, that sounds like a, a very exciting and, and promising information as well. I think as a new graduate or soon to be graduated vet, the the, the sort of time pressured emergency setting is one of the more stressful things to, to think about. So, to, you know, if, especially with the, if you guys have got sort of data coming forward with that actually, that feels like something that could, you know, bring confidence to people a- across the board, really, in, in dealing with what-, what would be the more stressful things to see in-, in those first few months or years of your career, really, isn't it? So
2: Yeah, no, I'm
3: 100%. Yeah, that's really lovely data that you have, Soren. That's really, really cool, actually. I love the idea of using students because um, that's going to give vets and techs that are unsure of ultrasound, which in our experience is a lot of them, um, so much confidence. I, I think that's so cool and I, I really like that you're training uh, student vets in ultrasound. Has that been a fairly new development or has that been the way of things at Calgary for a while?
2: Yeah, so I would say the 2013s when we first so it's been about 10 years now that we've started to roll the training into the students' uh, curriculum. It was a learning process and we used to just do things on the side and then some of the students said, why aren't you teaching us this? This seems incredibly practical. So we said, "Okay, let's put it into the curriculum. Then they've gone from there and said, well, why aren't you using cadavers to show us the pathologies? Because we use a lot of cadaver um, training as well um, on. client uh, patients that have been euthanized that we have permission to use Um, so they'll give us consent to use those uh, patients we'll do some work with cadavers and the students were like why don't you actually show us the pathology so i will say to me that um mutual learning process with the students which is why i love to bring the students in is fantastic because it brings things back down to the ground level of like yeah sure that's a great question why don't we do it that way uh why aren't we training our students in these different applications And they come back with feedback when they go, because we have a distributed veterinary model here where our students spend a lot of time in their fourth year in the clinic settings. And they'll come back with feedback there as well and say, yeah, we have an ultrasound machine here. The vets were comfortable with this, but not with this. Uh, Can we add that to the curriculum? Uh, And we've had students that have gone out now in their fourth year rotations into the clinics where some people have less experience. Uh, Some of the veterinarians have a machine there, but are less experienced with it. Our students will actually send back clips to us here and we will say, yeah, you've got a large left atrium in that cat um, and you've got B-lines. Looks like a congestive heart failure. You should seek a cardiologist's uh, opinion and start some furosemide. So our students in fourth year will will be able to do some things just because we're training them in our curriculum that some of our uh, veterinary practitioners that have wanted to learn ultrasound Shalm but have been scared to pick up the probe because of that lack of confidence. Uh, and then they come back to us and we, we do some veterinary training here at the university as well. Uh, We will go into clinics and help train them in their uh, point of care applications as well. So I just think it's a nice mutually beneficial setup that we have to include the students for sure.
0: Do you get an impression that perhaps this movement with regards to the student has resulted in any impact on the rest of of, uh, the veterinary profession? So is there an increasing shift towards people having the confidence and I think also the inclination to say, I want to learn this. Uh, rather than, like you say, being scared and sort of holding back and and almost avoiding avoiding eye contact with it.
2: Yes, and I, that's just it. It breaks my heart to go into a clinic and see a machine collecting dust that's only used to do Like There's so much more you can do with a machine. Uh, and then it's the confidence and experience, because there's actually now, I think, five surveys that have been published with regards to practitioner or uh, first line uh, opinion practice Using ultrasound, so there was one done out of the Royal, uh, or sorry, out of uh, yeah, it was actually Cole uh, Laura Cole's group uh, out of the RBC. They did a survey in the UK on um, competence levels with different assets of point of care ultrasound that was recently published. Uh, I know the crew in Belgium did one. We did one here in Canada. There's two in the states now, and if you look at it, I think from the standpoint of the states, I think 80% of practices now uh, have an ultrasound machine, but not everybody's using it because of the lack of training or confidence. Um, So I think those were the two biggest hurdles beyond not having a machine that limited people from using ultrasound. So I do think that that training is a big part of it. And I think that paradigm shift is changing with our students getting that curricular training now. Anybody that graduated more than 10 years ago, if they weren't doing a residency or seeking advanced training after their degrees, was unlikely to have ever been trained in ultrasound. So now I think the fact that we're fitting into our curriculum and our students are going into practice with the expectation an ultrasound should be available, it's bringing up the standard of care for those general practitioners that have always wanted to do it but never had the confidence. Now the students are coming in as new grads. A lot of them are saying, yeah, we should be able to do this. So the demand, I think, for the courses is there. It's just a matter of and the veterinary emergency critical care ultrasound working group. Which is based out of europe uh is in the process of trying to set up a consensus statement and standardization because the next step i really do think we need to do is come up with some sort of the standardization between the different uh curriculums and the trainings in terms of what should we be training how should we be training it what's the minimum standard for point of care i know it's been done for some other ultrasound programs but i think that's the next step and the the veterinary emergency critical care ultrasound working group um out of Europe, uh, which again, some of the crew at the RBC and Liège and uh, Paris are heavily involved with, um, I think that's going to be uh, instrumental over the next year or two to say, this is what we should be doing. This is the consensus statement. This is how we should be training, what level should we training to within the student curriculum as well as beyond that. So I'm really curious to see that come out. That's really exciting to actually be in the process of working on that. Uh, and I'm hoping it'll be out in the next year and a half, the consensus for Point Carol Show. Uh, and then standardized training. So that's hopefully where we're going to go.
3: It's really interesting what you say about confidence there, Soren, because I recently did um, some preliminary work surveying veterinary practitioners about confidence levels in first opinion practice um, over kind of all first opinion procedures, but with a focus on diagnostic imaging. And I had um, respondents that were mostly quite experienced 10 plus years in practice and a lot of them had done a decent amount of imaging CPD at sort of 50 plus hours um, and I had a few referral clinicians actually answer the survey as well and um, the I asked them on a scale of 0 to 100, 0 being no confidence whatsoever, wouldn't know where to start and 100 being very confident, not a problem, how confident they were in performing A-pocus and T-pocus and it came out at 62% which didn't really surprise me because I think it's a lack of familiarity uh, perhaps in the older the older population of, of practitioners because it's a relatively new concept um so that's it fits with what you were saying about sort of lack of confidence um and I think it's really awesome that, that um, your students are getting to do it because it will empower them hugely in decision making in in um, critical situations where it is very binary it's very algorithm based you know um but the other thing um, I was going to say was um, with standardization of POCUS techniques, etc. Um, in the UK, there's a, a big movement um, of getting our nurses to uh, start doing ultrasonography and to answer yes, no questions and to um, create images and be able to do fluid scores um, and triage and things like that with ultrasonography. Is that something that is happening over in, yeah, over where you are?
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, just two points on that. The sixty-two percent, I think that's uh, pretty much in line with what we found as well. But when we break that down, I think there's areas of more experience than others. I think the biggest area, the practitioners from the surveys found, a lack of confidence in is the cardiac evaluation. So, I think within that 60 percent, I do think there's variation between the heart, the lungs, and the abdomen. Uh, at least that's what uh, some of the results we found in the surveys we've done. So uh, I don't know if you've published your results or if that was just an internal, because that would be interesting to see, too, if that's uh, possible to share. Because I find that fascinating to see where people's level, because it tells us where we need to do more training as well. Uh, but to come back to um, the second part of your question with regards to the technicians, that gets very interesting. So I'm going to say that we have our emergency critical care certified technicians here which we train uh, quite extensively in point of care ultrasound and they will do ultrasound guided vascular access for example ultrasound guided central line placement because our technicians are already trained to do those procedures uh percutaneously so they put the central lines in they'll put the pick lines in so they'll use ultrasound now as a, a complement to that same thing they'll do um arterial catheter ultrasound guided placement uh, some of them if you feel comfortable enough they go and they do the cystocentesis Some of them will feel comfortable doing uh, thoracosynthesis, ultrasound guided. The big question that we always run into, and it varies by province, by country, by state, uh, by region. What defines the role of what a technician should do? Should technicians be or are we now encroaching on the veterinarian's responsibility? Is it considered veterinary medicine if you pick up an ultrasound and have to interpret an image to be able to do a procedure? So that, to me, is a bigger issue at the provincial or um, country's regulation in terms of defining roles for technicians, nurses, veterinarians, and where the lines are. But when it comes to training the technicians, we have specific point-of-care ultrasound designated technician courses at European Veterinary Emergency Critical Care uh, Congress every year. So EVEX, uh, for the last four years, has done a technician point-of-care ultrasound lab. We do it at the western veterinary conference in vegas every year now we started adding the technicians lab uh, we've done that twice we do it in the uh, cvma the canadian veterinary medical association uh, labs we run the technician labs so we train a lot of technicians in point of care how they use it and what they're allowed to do with it i think really does vary by region but we're, we think that the skill set that they'll get from learning point of care for our technicians is applicable in many scenarios, whether it's uh, IV guided access they're using it for or it's simply to do a pre-scan in the triage setting and say it's got fluid in the chest or I believe it's got fluid in the chest. You need to to have a look at this uh, and advise the doctor. And if you think about the same thing on the human side, most of your initial image capture is by ultrasound technicians, not by the radiologists. They're then read by the radiologists. We had a similar situation uh, when I did my residency. Where we had a technician that uh, captured most of the ultrasound images that were then read later by a a specialist in in imaging. So I don't know where the lines are, but I do think it's useful for our technicians to be able to interpret anatomy, identify the anatomy, uh, and be able to, to understand the manipulations of the probe to potentially do procedures. So we definitely train them in that, for sure.
3: I always find it really interesting how the rules are different across so um, our nurses wouldn't be able to stick a needle into a into a cavity so they wouldn't be able to do cystocentesis or thoracocentesis but the ultrasound guided um central line placement and arterial catheter and things like that that would be that would be okay to do so um I always found that quite interesting but I think it's so important for their job satisfaction you know um to be able to do some of the really really cool stuff like that I think that's um quite fun
2: Yeah, no, 100% agree. Retention is a a big problem for uh, a lot of our technicians. uh, And I think it's a big problem for ER doctors as well. And I think the more that we can empower them with uh, to feel confident in making the diagnosis, I think that well-being of knowing that you're in the right track and you're doing something that's beneficial, as opposed to being frustrated not being able to do it, uh, is hugely impactful. I think that's a a big part of um, retention and well-being as well.
1: And it kind of goes both ways as well, doesn't it? It helps reduce the pressure maybe on on the the veterinary member you know the surgeon in in that scenario, if you if you've got maybe more um, nurse nurse staff around in certain circumstances, albeit not always, but um you know if you can share more of of the tasks, it you know it's more fun for the the nurse involved and potentially helps helps balance everything out a little bit through the team, which which can be great, albeit I appreciate a lot of a lot of the Places at the moment i don't know what it's like at your end but i think sort of staffing is is definitely uh, a problem and i think yeah the more um the more everything can be spread through it will keep it exciting but uh, but helps sort of yeah spread those jobs across as well really yeah
2: and i think the team approach to diagnosis is a key component of making a good healthy environment so uh, same thing when we have a complex case we have multiple specialists involved i think having multiple layers across experiences, including our technicians, our nurses, um, everybody that's involved with those cases contributing. Again, I think it builds a better collegial environment. And like you said, does make some of the workload a little less dependent on one individual within that practice setting.
0: But I think it also makes the workload um, more interesting for them for say if um In my experience, when an ultrasound examination is being performed, uh, especially if there's um, multiple regions, um, I'm sort of speaking as an equine vet here, you could easily find yourself in the ultrasound room for about an hour, depending on the horse. And if the person holding the horse and assisting with the patient doesn't understand what they're seeing on the screen, they're bored stiff and, and that doesn't do them any good whatsoever. But the minute they start to understand what they see, they can become involved in the case and the process that's going on. And um, I think they actually find it quite enjoyable.
2: No, I I 100% agree. And that's, I mean, if I think about it from my own personal experience as a student, you would go into the ultrasound room, even as an intern, you go into the ultrasound room, you'd stand there and hold that patient for an hour while the specialist scanned it. And if you didn't know what was happening, it was exactly like you said, for others that aren't uh, as familiar trained in it, it becomes uh, a long process to sit and watch and look at something you don't necessarily understand. You may ask a question, but you don't always get the satisfactory answer. That's the change now because our students, when they're on fourth year rotation with us uh, in the ER, uh, when the patients come through, they do the initial point of care ultrasound evaluation. They put the probe on. So instead of watching somebody else do it, and try to learn just by seeing and not knowing if we'll get to do it. Our students when they hit the fourth year rotations with us in the ER, so when they're on with me on the ER setting and my colleague here, Dr. Menard, when they're in with us on the um, ER setting, they will be the ones that do, as we're assessing those patients, they'll be the ones that do the preliminary first scan while we're watching them to tell us what they're actually seeing and what they're diagnosing. So we integrate our students into that for exactly that reason uh, that you just mentioned, Thora.
3: That's great. That's really great. I, we didn't have anything like that at university. Watched a lot of scans. Didn't have a clue what was going on. I don't think we really saw that much POCUS happening in the ER. I mean, Laura, Laura and I graduated at the same time from the same place. Have you got the same uh, rec, re- recollection that I do, Laura?
0: I, I don't remember coming across point of care ultrasound as concepts until well after graduation. Yeah,
3: and we're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> jake's a bit fresher than we are what about you jake
1: yeah no we we definitely had had some and i had, uh sort of ultrasound training in in points care ultrasound and uh i i also think we 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 did have more ultrasound training sort of from day one whether it was even just during learning anatomy it was involved but I still think that the that confidence to use the equipment maybe wasn't there. When actually, it's something that I think for everybody, and we certainly see it on our course days too. People, and when we've had the nurse training days as well, the the speed in which people learn the skills required for POCUS and and um, you know thoracic and abdominal is is really quick and you, and you can see the enjoyment that that brings with it once you know that that skill set's gained um so yeah I,
3: I, so i'm going to just think bring, it's a, it's
1: kind of
2: a no brainer isn't it so you can gain a lot from um, that as well so in, back in with practice. abdominal pocus,
3: so, yeah. i feel that it's it, there's really one kind of main technique with small side quests um please correct me if i'm wrong <laughs> but um t i feel like there are sort of three main ways that you can do it and you can fuse them together or pick and choose different areas depending on what you actually think the problem is whether you think you've got you've got trauma or whether you've maybe got a cardiac patient i.e hit by car versus dyspneic old cat sort of thing is that kind of where you would suggest that people go or would you suggest that people pick the technique stick with it decide what they want to examine or or kind of look at everything
2: it's a great question. And I'm going to say, I don't think there's a consensus amongst the criticalists uh, or the people that are training and, and leading the way in point of care ultrasound. Some people are very protocolized driven and they think everything should be done exactly the same way every single time. Uh, I don't agree with that. That's not quite the philosophy that we have. And I think it's, it's really sort of as it's been compared to, it's an extension of the physical exam and the physical exam does vary depending on the clinical presentation. So an unstable patient gets a triage exam, doesn't get a full comprehensive exam. So uh, a person that comes in or an animal that comes in and it's got uh, a specific problem, limping, it gets an orthopedic exam potentially that might not happen as part of the general approach. So I, I think of point of care in a similar sense that the application of it depends on the clinical setting in which you're experiencing. If I got a patient that's coming in, it's agonal and I think it's going to die uh, and it's got muffled heart sounds, got waxing and waning pulses. I'm thinking this is a pericardial diffusion. I'm not going to start like I might normally do with my physical exam and start with an abdominal point of care ultrasound. I suspect it's got pericardial diffusion. This patient's in trouble. I'm going to apply it like a triage setting. I'm going to put the probe over the heart. If I see pericardial diffusion, I'm going to tap it, stabilize it, then come back and do a secondary survey, just like the more complete physical exam. So I do vary things up. Absolutely. And I think that triage exam dictates where you start. Like I might start on the abdomen. If the patient comes in with uh, abdominal pain, shock and a history of vomiting, then I suspect there's a problem in the abdomen. I want if there's fluid, I want to know he's septic. I'll do that immediately. And then depending on what I find and how stable the patient is, I'll expand my point of care ultrasound evaluation beyond that comes in with respiratory stress. Just like you said, Uh, it's a small breed dog that's had a history of a murmur. The murmur's gotten worse. Now he comes in with coughing and uh, he's got respiratory problems. I'll start with the lungs. I'll see what the problem is. If you got B lines, I can check quickly. Check the left atrium after seeing those B lines. Okay, I've got a situation of left-sided congestive heart failure. Get him on oxygen. Get him on furosemide. Stabilize him. Assess more broadly. Uh, so again, and it's a, it's a dynamic process. And if a patient comes in with a very non-specific sign, it's just shock, collapse, no idea why. That could be something in the chest It could be something in the abdomen. So then I've got to do a more extensive assessment from the standpoint of pointy aerosol to find underlying causes of shock. Cause it could be a hemoabdomen, could be pericardifusion, could be a number of different things that are contributing to that shock scenario. So I varied up depending on the clinical assessment and the pretest probability of Bayer's theorem in terms of what do I think is most likely and how stable is my patient, my patient gets transferred to me from the ER service. Uh, and it's stable in the morning, then I'll do a full physical exam, I'll read through the record and I'll do a complete point of carostone evaluation from head to toe, chest and abdomen, uh, assessing the cardiovascular system, everything. But if he comes in unstable, no, it's just like a triage exam. I believe that you need the minimum windows that you can assess, find the problem, stabilize, then when they're stable, come back uh, and complete it. So I have a a different approach depending on how the patient presents. There's absolutely, if he comes in and I suspect he's got a pneumothorax, and I'm doing my thoracic exhalation, I'm not going to start ventrally looking for fluid. I'm going to start looking for that uh, loss of lung sliding, lung point, or abnormal curtain signs. Okay, he's got a pneumothorax tap and stabilize him. Now, I'll come back and assess the rest of them. So it, it, I think my approach is maybe a little bit different than some of the other people that believe it should be standardized every time, but you put an animal in front of me, and I'm responsible for it. Uh, it drives me nuts when I see people doing things for the sake of completing the point of care when the patient's in respiratory stress and just needs some therapy. So I think sometimes we get so caught up looking at the image or trying to complete something, we forget the patient and how stable that patient is. So to me, it really does vary depending on the clinical setting that's encountered.
3: Um, I was just also thinking in terms of technique, um, on our echocardiography courses, the LA to AO is, is known to be the sort of trickiest view to reliably get every time. I'd imagine that doesn't change just because it's T-pocus. Um, any hints and tips for the multitudes that will struggle with this when you're teaching them?
2: Yes, and I will say that was probably the hardest thing for me to figure out. A lot of us, I think, can can put a probe on a patient that have done echoes and get the image they need and know what to do to fix it. But the question I found the hardest was, can I actually break that down into the steps that people need to be able to understand to correct things? That was the hardest thing for me. And I would watch them and they say, what am I doing wrong? And to be able to actually say, yeah, to be able to actually say uh, you're breaking the septum while you're holding the fish mouth, you're too perpendicular to the ribs. You got to rotate five degrees clockwise. So to actually put those pieces to actually have to watch people do it. And I'll say that's, again, where our students are the most beneficial because we do this over and over and over again and got to come up with a way without taking the. It's just so easy to take the probe and, and show them what to do, but to actually be able to do that without touching the probe, I think, is, is one of the key things. So when it comes to the heart, uh, one of the things I always tell people is you have to think about how the heart sits in the thorax. And it's usually, we always ask them, everybody knows it doesn't go straight up and down. Everybody knows it's not perfectly horizontal. It's on an angle. But when they put the probe on, they often stay perpendicular to the ribs. They don't mimic the angle of the heart to get it in short axis. So we always say, think about the heart's position, put the marker of your probe towards the elbows, how we do it, kind of the reverse of that cardiologists uh, with a screen image but put the probe on uh, with the marker towards the elbow. Think about the angle. So we always say, think about a four o'clock position on the clock. If you put a a clock on the patient, you want your marker to about four o'clock position. That'll give you the short axis. Uh, And then I also tell people, the further caudal you are, the closer you are to the apex. When you want the LAO, you want to be near the base. So don't be scared to jump ribs. Uh, And then, I always tell them when they fan, hold the mitral valve, the fish mouth. Make sure you make adjustments then so that that septum doesn't break. Because if it breaks, you're too perpendicular and you got to rotate clockwise. So it's really hard to explain it uh, in a podcast. Um, But I will say the other thing that we always tell people, and we do this intentionally when we train them, uh, we turn the screen off. We freeze it or close it or cover it because it's really not your skill with ultrasound. It's your knowledge of how to put the probe on and uh, the uh, position of the heart in the chest. So we turn the screen off. We do this as our live demo. It works better when you've got an animal you can palpate the apex beat on. Because we always tell them, don't look at the screen. Don't drive around. Don't put the probe on and drive randomly hoping you'll see the heart because then it's frustrating. You're on lung. You don't know where you are and you want to throw in the towel. Take a moment, palpate with one finger, your absolute tip of the finger, where the strongest apex heartbeat is. Keep your fingertip there. Then put the probe flat on the table. We usually do our dog standing. We never put him in right lateral. We do them standing. So it makes it a little easier when we're training. But put the probe flat on the table. Then pick the probe up so it stays flat. Now it's at a essentially three o'clock position. Rotate to four. Then where you palpate it and palpate carefully. Go up and down on the rib. Go forward a rib. Go back a rib. Find the strongest apex beat. Then when you pick that probe up, it's essentially parallel to the table. Turn it to four o'clock put it right where your fingertip is. And I would say, if you can palpate the heartbeat, 90% of our uh, attendees, when we unfreeze the image will be on the mushroom view or uh, in that correct, right? A, uh short axis view. So we do it and we do, we do it. Uh, Serge and I, when we do it, we actually try to actually get right to the LAO without ever looking at the screen just to show people it's your knowledge of the probe and the heart and the anatomy more than it is your skill with ultrasound. Because if I can do it without looking at the screen, it's not my skill with ultrasound. It's my knowledge of how the whole probe has to be held and how the heart sits within the chest. So we do that a lot. Uh, And that really makes people confident then if they don't look at the screen and they try to get the image before you unfreeze the screen. So that's the biggest thing that we do for the uh, right personal short access views. And then it's a matter of making sure they don't do more than one probe manipulation at a time. Because a lot of people, They'll fan and rock or they'll go to rotate. And when they rotate, they fan at the same time. So we emphasize really stress. They have to do one probe manipulation at a time when it comes to the heart because a degree or so or a, a five degree rotation and it gives you a completely different image than what you expected. So the big things we focus on. But the biggest thing when we're in the lab doing it hands on is freeze the screen. Don't look at it. Think about the anatomy. Palpate. Put the probe where you can palpate it. And think about your probe orientation at a four o'clock position on the clock, straight parallel to the table. So that's how we sort of explain it. But yeah, I've never actually tried to explain to somebody how to do it over a podcast. So this will be a first If that actually made sense to anybody out there listening.
1: Oh,
3: it absolutely
1: did. I think we'd all be we'd all be having a go at that the next time we're on a on a course
2: day ourselves.
3: Yeah, can we can we borrow that or is it trademarked? Because that sounds
2: great. <laughs> all the singers, We believe in open access. We don't. Yeah, uh, awesome. We don't like the trademark stuff. And actually, when we the other one we did was we did remote uh, when COVID hit. We had some labs we'd planned to go over and do in Australia and we couldn't go. So then we had people with GoPros filming what people were doing on the other end with the screen. Then you really have to figure out how to explain things without being able to grab the probe or even demo it. Uh, So we do a demonstration on Dr. Schlube's dog in the basement and then watch people do it. And again, that's where I think you really learn to instruct people is when you see people do it over and over and over again, you have to be able to explain it without doing it. Um, So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, you'll have to to let me know if there's any feedback on that uh, podcast uh, with our description on how to scan the heart.
3: Oh, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely taking that because we're doing a lot of nurse courses at the moment. They're very, very popular, um, which is quite exciting. Um, And yeah, they, they love the LA to AO because lots of them will have been in the echocardiography room, holding a dog for an hour thinking, crikey, what on earth is going on? And then to to have the opportunity to be like I can do this they're really into it so the I think they find the LA to AO a really really cool goal to get to and similarly to you um and I guess the others on the team too will have found it so difficult to tell someone how to move the probe when they're doing a heart scan so actually your little nuggets of information there are really
1: really good
2: uh, you'll have to let me ho- know how it goes for sure and then I guess it's the the,
1: the 20, 20 more practice goes and then, uh, or 25 or, or so, and then it should be, you know, more, hopefully second nature when you when you come into doing it, I suppose.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we, we do get people to start with that. And we usually try to pick a more keel-chested dog. But then of course our attendees will also challenge us and say, well, what if you can't palpate it? Then we actually say, okay, we'll start with the one that you can palpate. Then we'll bring in a, a, a boxer or we'll bring in a, a bulldog. Uh, if we have it for, uh, the labs as well. And then we tell them, we teach them a slightly different approach. Once they're comfortable palpating it and finding it a few times, uh, then we'll actually have them trace the, um, curtain sign ventrally. Cause if you follow the curtain sign down, uh, in dogs, at least, uh, it almost always contacts the heart. So you come down off the curtain, you come caudally, to hit the curtain sign, follow it cranial ventrally until it touches the heart, then jump forward a rib. So you're on the heart. Then rotate your probe to four o'clock. So that's how we tell people to do it if they can't feel it at all and are wondering where the heart is um, in a standing patient. It's a different story in their right lateral, but uh, in the standing patient, that's how we tell them to do it as well.
3: I love the idea of you having a teaching pug that you wheel out of the cupboard. Like <laughs> here's here's your challenge.
2: Yeah. Uh, so again, and actually, the other thing that's really interesting, uh, there are some uh, 3D virtual training. Now this one's really interesting, and uh, there's a group actually. Uh, these based out of the UK it was just at the London vet show uh, demonstrating the technology, which I understood was just like last week. Right. Um, and they actually had the 3D simulation and we worked with them to try and create that where you put the probe virtually, you put a, a headset on or you can do it without, but you put the probe uh, on what would be a virtual image and it shows you the ultrasound clip based on how you manipulate the probe. And I played with it, it's quite realistic. we give them some feedback and they based it on CT scans. Uh, but the neat thing about that one, you can also layer it so you can see one, the ultrasound image, but two, you can see the anatomy. So you can actually see where the vessels are. So when you rotate, you can see when you'll hit uh, the, the five chamber outflow tracks and you'll see when you can hit exactly the aorta with the fan. So it actually slices in the different angles, the anatomy as well as the uh, ultrasound image. So that's coming Uh, they use it on the human side uh, a fair bit uh, for the simulated training Uh, i've talked to a number of the simulators the 3d and other they just don't find it uh, at this point cost effective to create the same models in our veterinary patients Uh, but the echo one is in the process it's in the works i'm pretty sure that's going to come out um, in the next little while and i think then again we can start to look at uh, how we integrate uh, those models simulated as well as 3d prior to live dog scanning to say, yeah, it cuts your scan time down and your ability to find that uh, LAO with far greater confidence in a much shorter period of time if you're learning it from the anatomy and 3D simulation standpoint. So I think that one's coming. It's it's really fun to play with. i would never done 3D. but You just basically step into the room with a dog in front of you, pop the probe on. It's, it's a lot of fun to, to play with. So I'll be curious to see where that stuff goes as well. I think that'll be the next probable wave of... Um, Education on the veterinary side with Pony Carol Shaw.
0: Nothing like a bit of fun to um, get people involved either, right? Like that so that does sound fun, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, it will be interesting to see how that um, impacts people's sort of confidence and, and acquisition of those skills. We have something um, not dissimilar to that. So in, um, in our courses, we've recently um, moved all of our, I guess you can kind of call it theory to online blended learning for the reason that we thought there's a better way to do this than standing up and just talking at people and expecting them to take it in. And um, our colleague Sam has developed some very nice um, sort of 3D models where you essentially have the 3D organ in question, perhaps with some surrounding adjacent anatomy as well. And there's a sort of a probe that's put on and you can see where the fan intersects with the organ and how movement, rocking, fanning, how that impacts the image. And then on the other side, you can see what the that image would look like. It's obviously very schematic, but does give an overview, and people f- feedback from learners has been really positive. That they, it helps them to uh, to to visualise what's happening when you know it. It's difficult, isn't it? It's a two dimensional image of a three dimensional subject. So so having an actual simulator, that'll be very interesting to see see what that does.
2: Yeah, no, I, and I think that's one of the key pieces is to tie that anatomy. To a screen, that's where people I think lose the disconnect because they've. It's been so long since they, so that the, they've taken the anatomy courses to know how the chambers sit and where they are and how you'd need to slice it on short axis to get that image. So I think the what you guys are describing will be extremely beneficial and helpful in terms of correlating the anatomy to the ultrasound image, like you just said, a 3D structure to a 2D image. Um, And then I think if people can actually do the manipulations as the next step, which I think is where some of that um, simulated training is going with the 3D, uh, it'll basically take the anatomy and the ultrasound image, but then tie it together as one thing that you actually have to learn the probe manipulations to see the impact of on the screen in real time. Uh, So I I think it's going to be interesting to see where that goes uh, in the future.
0: Mm, A space to watch, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. But we would be remiss if we were to chat away about this without discussing perhaps um, vascular access, ultrasound guided vascular access in a bit of detail, because you have been a little bit of a pioneer on this um, in the veterinary field.
2: Absolutely. So again, that's something that's probably come into the veterinary side uh, more recently relative to the other point of care applications from a diagnostic standpoint, the interventional side of things. And the ultrasound guided vascular access uh, is one that I think is a natural progression, because once you're familiar with uh, the orientation of the probe and the different planes when it comes to ultrasound, the ability I think to succeed in placing an IV catheter or obtaining a venous or arterial blood sample is unbelievably impactful. So. When it comes to blood sampling, you get those cats or those uh, dogs that come in, they've, they've got hematomas or they've got edema and you just can't feel things well. The beautiful thing about ultrasound, you put a probe on, you can see the vessel. You can also assess the vessel if it's thrombosed or it's patent to say, yes, I can get a sample from this or no, I should choose a different vessel. You can also get a feel for the depth of that vessel in terms of how far you'll have to advance your, your needle uh, or catheter to either place the catheter or collect a sample think it's brilliant for that. And the thing I'll say is if you use models, there's two different techniques that we, we train for the most part, and that's in-plane and out-of-plane blood sampling uh, or uh, catheter placement. So most of the time we do procedures like cystocentesis, pericardocentesis, other things that are ultrasound guided. We're always going in-plane, meaning that you're passing the needle along the ultrasound beam in long axis. So you'll see the needle the entire time. But when it comes to, and I learned this when I was doing one of the human pointy carol sound courses a few years back, what they do is they go out of plane. So uh, instead of trying to track along a one millimeter width ultrasound beam, they're coming in at a 90 degree angle to that ultrasound beam because no matter where you cross it now, you'll cross that one mil, the tip will become visible. So we've started to use out-of-plane as well as in-plane training techniques for ultrasound guidance. And we have several models, whether it's gel, which we've used in the uh, in the UK at a number of the conferences we've done there. Um, so we run some gel models, but we also use uh, a chicken phantom, raw chicken breast phantom model to more closely mimic true tissues. And we've trained our technicians on this using the, they've never done ultrasound, uh, they've never done ultrasound guidance. We train them using this raw chicken phantom model. And the other day, uh, one of my techs actually sent me an email and said, hey, we have put a dorsal pedal arterial catheter in a 10 kilogram dog. I didn't believe them. They took the video and sent me the video. So my technicians now, the one thing I'll warn you, if you train them in okay. it, they may outperform uh, you in their ability to do the ultrasound guided procedures. Uh, so they actually will put dorsal, pedal, arterial catheters in with ultrasound guidance now. Um, they're extremely good at it going out of plane. So the, the the idea is, you know, you get those sharp A's in or you get dogs that are uh, uh, body consistent score five out of five. It's really hard to feel the vessel. Then I think that's where ultrasound guidance becomes very beneficial. Um, we've done it for... Uh, bears, when you can't uh, feel any IV cath or any uh, vessel at all in a bear, for example, we find it with ultrasound, we can walk a catheter into it. Um, So we've done that. We've done studies. um, Actually, the crew out of Belgium, just in, uh, I think it's in press now, they actually just said anything that comes to the ER, go blind versus ultrasound. And the ultrasound got to a point they were faster than blind, or at least equal to. So, and that was in patients coming into the ER. So I've always said put your ultrasound guided catheters in your more stable patients, but there may be some evidence coming out that suggests it will be, uh, efficient to do it even in the slightly compromised, uh, vascular patients. So I'll have to see that research. Uh, it should be in press, uh, should come out shortly, I hope. Um, but with practice, you can get very, very good at doing ultrasound guided blood sampling and catheter placement. And there's multiple models out there, uh, that more and more people are embracing. And we have some videos, um, more than happy to share them on um, how to uh, do in-plane and out-of-plane. We I went to learn how to do nerve blocks more uh, precisely with the crew in Italy. Uh, we did some filming of in-plane and out-of-plane ultrasound guided uh, vascular access techniques as well. Uh, so And then if you get good at it, you can do your central lines with it. You could use your peripherally inserted central lines. Um, they're doing a Reboa catheter placements with ultrasound now, uh, and showing the difference in skill sets out of Italy with that. So once you gain that skill, uh, it's almost endless, the applications that you can do with it. So, uh, I think it's uh, incredibly impactful. Um, and I think if you can palpate a vein, the odds are you can place it, uh, without the need for ultrasound, but if you can't feel it for some reason, hematoma, edema, uh, body condition score, then it becomes really, really nice to have that ultrasound as a backup to place that catheter, obtain that arterial sample with 100% confidence versus a venous sample when you're going for an arterial blood stick. You push down on the uh, probe, the vein collapses, the artery doesn't. You know which one to collect if you want an arterial sample with confidence. Uh, so that's how we, we've sort of uh, started to apply it. But lots of models out there and lots of uh, ways you can gain confidence for sure in doing point of care uh, guided techniques.
1: I think it's, it's definitely one of those uh applications of ultrasound that really fine tunes the use of pressure on the probe though doesn't it when you're when you're practicing for venous access for this is other other imaging uh, uses really yeah
2: yes yeah so that's a really good point uh it's you got to use gentle touch because you can easily collapse that vein 100 agree so that does take some practice in that sense but that's why i like the uh the other reason i like that chicken phantom model because it's got give to it and I often have to tell people that are practicing, be nice to the vessel, don't collapse it. It should be round, not football shaped, uh, because people lose that when they're so focused. So that's, again, a nice model. And you can make it with a, the chicken phantom model. When we use that one. You can make the depth that the vein sits within two millimeters of the muscle surface. So you're really mimicking something similar to uh, the placement and the depth of the vessel in a patient uh, and the pressure that would be required to collapse that you can also change the size of the vessels as well so it's yeah it's a lot of fun to do it for sure
3: (laughs) no it's just going to reminisce about the um making those models at isfm and just trying to remember how we did it so chicken breast scalpel blade balloon modeling balloons and importantly a 60 mil feeding syringe yes and some and some cling wrap that's all
0: you Um need
2: Absolutely. Now And a plate or something to hold uh, everything in, because once you hit the vessel, there will be the, the liquid from the vessel that will come out. So we usually say a container of some sort of plate or a shallow tinfoil tray, the saran wrap, as you said, the chicken breast, a scalpel or a stylet to cut or groove that. Uh, and then the big thing um, that's really important is to make sure you don't get air in the balloon. And that's where that 60cc catheter tip syringe comes in, because you can draw the air out. Then we inject the fluid to fill the twisting balloon then we inject so much that it creates what we call an aneurysm it makes it bigger at one spot then we release the air from it before we tie it off Uh, and that uh, is key because air is an enemy of ultrasound, and it defeats the purpose if you've got air in the balloon because then you can't see the vessel yeah so everywhere we've done it yeah everywhere we've done it people have done it again so we did it at uh one of the first places i did it was at vets now uh several years ago and every time I go back to, to now they want to use a model. Uh, and now they actually did it this year. Um, we've done it a few times. They've got the confidence to teach it themselves. Uh, and the residents going through are getting better and better. So they're outperforming a lot of us that have been initially driving the uh, teaching. Uh, so they they did it again this year um, with no issues. Uh, so I, I think it is something that will slowly become a bigger and bigger part of the conferences because it's just so easy to create those models. Uh, and they, if, if there's some concerns over salmonella or the use of raw chicken, then the gel models work great. Um, and uh, the Crew now has a really nice um, auger gel mixture model to do that, um, which lasts for about three weeks uh, before uh, it goes uh, moldy. Uh, if you keep it in the fridge, you can break it down and remelt it in the microwave, report it. Uh, So lots of different models that are out there, Uh, and I think it is something because it's so easy to incorporate into any lab anywhere that adds a hands-on skill component to it, that I just think it's probably one of the easiest things to uh, share in conference settings. So it, it was one that, yeah, 10 years ago, I did it in one lab in one spot. That was it. Now I'd say there's a dozen labs at conferences around the world that we routinely try to put them in. Uh, whether I can attend them or not, uh, people are starting to use them more and more, and I think it'll just spread from there because it's it's such a nice model to teach people with. And it's such
1: a it's such a new, uh, it's particularly cross, like on the transverse plane coming across the the image is is such an alien technique to almost everybody with ultrasound. So I think everybody enjoys that practical when 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 that's sort of practiced um because yeah i mean even, even for myself that was one of the one of the first times i i'd seen that you know any use of, of that really with a you know when you're using a needle coming across the image just it, it felt so strange but you quickly pick it up and it's and and yeah right. it's it's very interesting
2: yeah yeah, and as long as you keep the tip visible and you don't go beyond the mill and lose the tip distal to the beam then i think you're golden uh, it does does tend to work really well, and we have a very high success rate in getting people to apply it in the models, and then people get excited. and I've got at least seven or eight ultrasound clips or emails of people that have attended that exact session and said, "I got this in in a uh, sharpay," or "I got this in in a dog that was so demonous, none of our ECC techs could get the catheter in. I put it in with ultrasound guidance." That for me, that feedback is incredibly rewarding because we come to a conference we lecture or we show a lab but you don't know whether what you're doing is actually going to uh help people so to get that feedback from individuals saying yeah this was really helpful and we managed to do it in this scenario to me that's yeah that's part of the reason we love to teach right is to get that feedback to know people are succeeding
0: knowing it's making um, a frontline impact beyond beyond the lecture theater yeah
2: um
0: just as a final question um With regards to uh, the out-of-plane technique, you mentioned um, perineural anesthesia or injection. Do you use it for other applications other than vascular access?
2: Yes, so you can use it for other applications for sure. And when it comes to uh, thoracosynthesis, just because, again, if I'm between the ribs, I sometimes find it easier to start uh, just below the fluid line and walk my needle in out-of-plane I just get the tip to cross the pleural uh, or the parietal lining, so I will sometimes do my thoracocentesis out of plane, just because sometimes you got to be way down low on the if the dogs and sternal or cats and sternally you got to be so low with the probe between the ribs that sometimes I find it easier to come in out of plane for the thoracocentesis. But the big thing is you don't want any structures that you can't see coming which is why it works well for vascular access, because you can slide all the way in that vessel. There's very little between the vessel surface and the skin that you could hit that would cause a problem. And I find the same thing if you're dead set between the ribs in the intercostal space, as long as you don't um, go over lung and you're definitely over the fluid, there's very little between the skin and the parietal lining in that plane that you could hit that would be a problem. So I'll use it for thoracocentesis as well. I do both in and out of plane for thoracocentesis. Uh, for the nerve blocks, the only thing with the nerve blocks is you tend to have to traverse a very long distance of tissue before you get to the uh, structure of interest. So you're usually using a needle that's incredibly long to be able to do your nerve blocks. And then I find it's just from that standpoint to be able to see everything to get from where you insert the needle to the site of interest, that going um, in plane And knowing how to never move the probe, only ever move the needle to bring it back into view is one of the key things when it comes to the nerve blocks. So you could do out of plane for your nerve blocks as well. It's just that that degree of or length of tissue that you usually have to traverse for the nerve blocks is a lot different than a half centimeter of tissue for um, the vascular access. Uh, But I will use it for thoracocentesis as well.
3: I remember that being a really big difference in these techniques actually is if you lose your needle is to wiggle the needle, not to fan the probe. That's because instinct will always have you move the probe um, from doing ultrasound guided FNAs. But yeah, with um, the vascular guided, uh, the vascular access and the um, nerve blocks, it's completely different.
2: Yeah. That's just it. When it comes to moving the probe, a lot of us do it with a urinary bladder. The urinary bladder is four centimeters wide. I don't even need to be on the one mil. I can come next to the urinary bladder or next to the probe at the right angle and I'll hit the the, the bladder because you've got so much room that if you don't see it, you can fan the probe and still hit the needle without worrying about going off the structure. Uh, and you can do that with some lymph nodes or fine needle aspirates as well. You've got enough room to fan back and forth. But when it comes to small structures like very small vessels, the saphenous, the cephalic and you're on and you fan the probe, that's it, you're off the vessel. So you can't really fan the probe to bring the needle in because you're no longer uh, centered on the structure of interest. Uh, whereas the urinary bladder is so forgiving, uh, like I said, it's it's I could just be off the probe completely, right next to it, um, and still hit a urinary bladder, even though I never see the needle. So it's ultrasound assisted, not guided, right? Um, so I think that's one of the big things with the the vessels and the vascular access. You got to keep the probe stationary, because if you if you fan it, you're off the vessel and you'll never hit it. Um, so all depends on the size of the structure, I think, when it comes to fanning the probe versus the needle. But once you get used to immobilizing the probe on the center of whatever structure it is, even if it's a lymph node, you can always still move the, the needle to bring it back into plane, uh, even if you're doing an in-plane technique. Nice.
0: Thank you so much. It's flown, it's absolutely flown by. Um,
2: absolutely astonished
3: we're at an hour. That is so much information in such a short period of time. Perfect.
2: <laughs> You get me talking point or else now, and I can talk for hours, uh, as you can probably tell. Um.
0: <laughs> no, it was it was truly fascinating. I, I can guarantee that we're going to be gathering our machines and our personal dogs within 24 hours and trying some of these um, hints and tips just to see how we get on.
2: Uh, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was great to see you all and to chat to you all. Uh, And uh, yeah, if anybody has any questions that we maybe didn't cover that are specific that I can help with, uh, I'm easy to find. I can't hide if I want to just type my name in and my email address comes up for the university. Um, So my university address, just feel free to send me an email if there was something that came up today that you guys do, uh, that the audience has any questions on. I'm more than happy to help with that. Uh, Although I will say I have checked out your guys' website and your teaching um, videos and they are fantastic. Um, oh thank you really, really good that's cool
0: let's wrap up this um hugely insightful episode of the podcast and once again i want to extend our most sincere gratitude to you uh soren for sharing your absolute wealth of knowledge um in the evolution of point of care ultrasound We've had a really valuable glimpse into uh, the advancements, the challenges and the transformative impact that um, POCUS has had on veterinary diagnostics and patient care. And certainly given us a lot to think about and hopefully our listeners too will be feeling equally inspired to perhaps have a go and looking into this a little bit further. Um, So before we head off obviously if you found today's conversation as enlightening as we did uh, make sure you subscribe to our podcast channel for more engaging discussions and of course visit our website for uh, various resources uh, relating to not only POCUS but all aspects of ultrasound and veterinary imaging. So I'll sign off for today. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us and I'll let everyone else say farewell as well.
2: Thank you very much, everyone. uh Pleasure to be involved with the podcast. I'll leave you with one of my favorite ER sayings uh, when it comes to ultrasound: "Pocus to live, live to pocus." Hope to see you at some point in the future.
3: Brilliant. <laughs> thanks, Soren. Um, bye, everybody. This has been super interesting. Thanks, thanks, Soren, for coming. It's been really fab.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Sona. For lack, I've learned an awful lot there. But it's very interesting, and yeah, see you later, everybody.